Hi, today I have the privilege of talking to Vedra Sintile. She had a remarkable career covering the breadth of the entire program, going from academia to biotech, from big pharma to entrepreneurship. She discusses her career choices and the discussion continues on to transitions and reinvention. Hope you enjoy this. Welcome to Life Science Talent Talks. We want to build a community to inspire life science professionals through talent talks and organized events. We aim to shine light on remarkable personalities initially from the Copenhagen Bay Area. My name is Søren Spellerbach. And my name is Neha Mortuza. We will be your podcast hosts. We would like to share personal life science journeys from all the exciting startups, biotechs and farmers out there, creating a life science talent ecosystem. Hi, Fedra. Welcome to our podcast. <laughs> Hi, Niha. I'm so happy to be here. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're just so happy because you've covered the entire spectrum of what we're trying to cover, you know, from academia to biotech to big pharma and then entrepreneurship or other things. So the theme of the discussion, transitions and reinventions. But before we go there, let's start with an overview of your journey in life science. You're from Dominica and you did your BSc, University of South Carolina That's in chemistry. Mm-hmm. And then you moved to Duke University to do your PhD in bioorganic chemistry. Mm-hmm. After correct. which you came to Denmark to the Kalsberg lab to start a postdoc in combinatorial glycopeptide, librisynthesis, screening, etc. Mm-hmm. And you continued there to become a group leader and you were there in the Carlsberg lab for 10 years or so. After which you actually were involved in the spin-out of the, from the Carlsberg lab in biotech called uh, Versamatrix. That's VMX. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, VMX was more about manufacturing of um, PEG-based uh, customized resins. Mm-hmm. We could talk about that later. And then after which um, you spent 14 years at Novo Nordisk. You started as a department head for, for protein purification technology. Principal scientist, actually. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you have to condense things for LinkedIn. Okay. Well, you started at Novo Nordisk in the protein purification area, mm-hmm. and then you moved towards uh, CMC and you were there for 14 years altogether. That's your life science, I would say, condensed. (laughs) So let's unpack this. Can you tell us a bit more about these journeys? We're not going to talk about the transition right now because that's the topic later. So let's uh, say, why, why did you do chemistry? It all stems back from my childhood. You know, everything, everything we are right now, it goes back to the childhood. And I was a very curious child. Uh-huh. My father, at one point, he brought this book home because I was an avid reader. I read everything. And the title of the book was Tell Me Why. Basically, it was explaining scientific phenomena for, to a child like, why is the sky blue? Yeah. And for me, that was deeply fascinating. So I've always had an interest, a deep curiosity for why things work. And not just things, but also people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm also very interested in what makes people tick. But that that's for another segment. So that sparked my curiosity. I studied science in high school. We had the English system. So I did my A-levels in chemistry. Why chemistry as opposed to another science? I think that chemistry is very fundamental to all the processes that go on. 
I would say after physics, chemistry is the next basic science. I'm <laughs> not sure. <laughs> I think biochemistry, maybe. Bi- biology is chemistry, right? Yeah, chemistry yeah. and physics. But anyway, <laughs> so I, I studied chemistry in high school, A-levels, and I ended up getting a scholarship to study chemistry at the University of South Carolina. Yeah. Although at the time I was a bit in doubt what I wanted to do with chemistry, I considered medicine. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate to do undergraduate research where it was actually in biochemistry where I studied the effect of retin-A, vitamin A, uh-huh. on skin cells, keratinocytes. So uh-huh. it was uh, actually a biochemical undergraduate research and that sparked my curiosity. And then I realized that I wanted to do research. I wanted to develop this uh, curiosity as opposed to going into medicine. Mm-hmm. And that led me going to graduate school and then coming in graduate school. My speciality again was at the interface of chemistry and biology. Mm-hmm. I specialized in carbohydrate synthesis and we used the carbohydrates that um, I synthesized to look at the effects on different bacteria. The one we looked at was like Shigella toxin at the time. It was called like the hamburger toxin. Mm-hmm. And the idea was you could use carbohydrates. Eventually, the application would be to develop some carbohydrate-based drug that you could use to prevent people getting sick from this E. coli bacteria. So carbohydrates, PhD. So what next? It's not medical school. I looked into doing academia, going the academic route in the U.S., Mm And I instead chose to come to Carlsberg Lab to do a postdoc. Why Carlsberg Lab? At the time I graduated, there was this thing that was bubbling up called combinatorial chemistry. And it was the next big thing that was going to revolutionize the pharmaceutical industry. And I wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Carlsberg at the time was a leading research institute within the area of uh, peptide synthesis and glycopeptide synthesis. So already with my carbohydrate background, I saw it as that an was opportunity, a natural step, natural step yeah. to expand my expertise, but also be at the cutting edge and learn something new about combinatorial science. So much of my work initially at Carlsberg was learning a solid phase uh, first peptide synthesis and glycopeptide synthesis, and that evolved into doing and developing on-beat screening assays, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's about the first matrix we can talk about yeah. at the time. The intention was to be there for two years. But after two years or actually a year and a half postdoc, I was given the opportunity or promoted to research associate where I would uh, co-administer a large EU grant for different labs um, in Europe and South America. And the intention or the purpose of the grant was to use the combinatorial libraries that we Mm -hmm. developed and a 1B2 compound assay that uh, we developed to use that to identify inhibitors for cysteine proteases. And again, there's a pharmaceutical application because the cysteine proteases were instrumental in um, leishmaniasis, which is a prevalent disease in South America and many tropical countries. So I worked on that grant for for four years and I mean my career was going quite well and you get promoted, you get more responsibility and I became a group leader. Then at some point um, Carlsberg like many other uh, companies were interested in 
developing biotech spin-out because it's a it's a basic research institute, at least at least it was at the time. And they wanted to use the basic research and have different applications. So they ran a competition where all employees were supposed to present ideas as to how the basic research that they'd been doing, how it could be commercialized. Was that quite innovative for its time to look at spin-outs? Cause... Yeah, especially spin-outs that were not directly related to beer brewing. Of course, the scope was extremely wide. So mm-hmm. It could be related to beer brewing or it could be related to other areas, especially farmer. Mm. And so that competition ran together with, um, it was facilitated by McKinsey. And funny fact, the CEO of Coloplast was the McKinsey consultant ah. who actually worked with me on, on my idea. And my idea was one of five that was selected. Uh-huh. And to be able to develop those ideas, um, Carlsberg established a special unit called the Carlsberg Biosector. Okay. And the biosector would be what you call today an incubator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so of the five ideas, they were of different maturity levels. And for example, Versamatrix was one of them. Okay. And the maturity level was much higher. So shortly after it was established as a company. But I continued in the biosector with um, other basic, um, well not basic, but developing the ideas into viable companies and also being part of the process of seeking funds. So how big was this biosector and then the spin out? Okay. The biosector was about, I think, 10 people working on for different um, projects. And um, I don't remember how much money was put into it by Cosbrick itself. But of the four ideas, two of them are, well, one had a good exit in terms of Versamatrix. It eventually uh, was um, bought by Novo Nordisk. And then there was another one that's uh, called Tukurex and they IPO'd recently about a couple of years ago, uh-huh. and it has implication in uh, cancer diagnostics using some differential screening. Okay. So you could cool. say 50%, that was quite a, a good success rate. But eventually, Carlsberg decided uh, to close the biosector. There was a lot of discussion going on, probably needing more to focus on the core, which mm-hmm. is uh, beer brewing. Another, actually, there was another idea that was highly successful within the brewing area where they developed this no locks species. It's a variation of a variant of barley that has really good properties for, for brewing. Ah, for brewing. Yes. Okay. And, but that was yet another success uh, that came out of the ideas. So the biosector was closed. I was fortunate to get a job at VMX as director of research. And the main purpose of Versa Matrix was to use or commercialize the resins, the matrices that I mm-hmm. talked about that we use for on-beat screening. They yeah. have the property that they can be used for synthesis with organic solvents. And at the same time, they can be used in aqueous solutions to do bioassays. And so one of the business model was twofold. 
would produce the resins mm -hmm. and at the same time we would functionalize them with affinity ligands and these ligands could be used in different purification, processes, for example, purification, primarily purification. Yep. So my role was to you know, direct the research and we did have a few collaborations to so make sure these projects uh, ran on time. So combination of project management and directing the science for our customers. So about a year after I started, that's when the assets were bought by Novo Nordisk and then I transitioned to Novo Nordisk. So that was a very good match. Yes, it was. And then uh, what did you do at Novo Nordisk? So when I started at Novo Nordisk and I reflected on my experience at Carlsberg the, and in the biosector, one of the things that I recognized was I was a bit frustrated that my role was as the input giver, the scientific expert, but not the decision maker. But for me, that was not enough. Sure, <laughs> I get it. Especially having come from a position as director of research and development at Versometrix, where, as you said, I was part of the management team. I was part of making the decision. Yeah, yeah. And then you're back to being the scientific expert. And so I felt that I wanted to develop myself where I can be part of the leadership and the decision making. And because of that, I studied at CBS. I'm not sure what it's called in English. I think it's a degree in business administration. I did the first two years. And as it happens, the project that on which I worked at Novo Nordisk, where I was the principal scientist, the project closed down and the department closed down. Ooh. <laughs> yes. Okay. So then it was a natural transition to move on to something else that you really exactly. thrive on. And then that's where I had the choice. I could choose to remain as a bench scientist, you know, working in the lab, or I could do something differently. And having studied at CBS for two years opened my eyes to other possibilities. And I had a couple people, a couple leaders at Novo Nordisk, you could say maybe sponsors, who helped me navigate the situation. And there was an opportunity that arose in a procurement. And my first thought was, how can I yeah. <laughs> go to a procurement? But um, when I looked more into the role, it was one, it drew on my, my leadership and project management skill. And secondly, it was a role that was needed because it was working closely with scientists And so because of my background as a scientist and also having a great grasp of the business aspect, so I could, I would, you could say I had the role of a translator <laughs> to be able to communicate with a scientist, understanding their needs, convert that into procurement and eventually outsourcing uh, needs. Yeah. And also um, can relay back to the scientists why you need to, for example, have a different uh, reagent. And so on. But the other thing I also think that's an advantage to have a scientist is the training that get, you get mm -hmm. from doing the research and being able to think on multiple levels to be able to receive many different inputs. And mm -hmm. some of them are seemingly very different, but being able to make this connection. To do the analysis as to well. To do the analysis, exactly. And I yeah. think that's a huge strength in, in having someone with a scientific background in you know business development or other commercial areas of a company. I agree totally. Can you tell us a bit about ProOp? Absolutely. 
So ProWalk was started before I left the Novo Nordisk in March of 2019. Mm-hmm. It was the initiative of my friend, Selim Ablo Nielsen, and she reached out to me and mentioned she wanted to develop this, to create this organization for, for women of color. And that the mission of ProWalk is to increase the visibility and impact of women of color in Denmark. And that really resonated with me because I've been in Denmark for 25 years. And in the early years, the narrative around people of color was not positive. Mm-hmm. And just one more thing about Novo Nordisk. I mentioned that I started within procurement and that was in the manufacturing part of the organization. After three years in that position, in my capacity as a director of outsourcing in the clinical development part of the organization, my team and I were very instrumental in the successful launch of the first oral GLP-1 for Novo Nordisk. That's such a success as well. It's yeah. doing really well. Yeah, it is. It is. So congratulations to the entire team who are working on this. I'm sure there's lots of people working on it. Thank you. People always ask, what do you do or, or who are you? Introduce yourself. No, no, no. We want to go, de- <laughs> no, we yeah, want exactly. to go deeper. <laughs> right. But my point is, I've done so many things and I, I am so many things. It's hard for me to just say one thing, to just say, okay, I'm a scientist or I'm an entrepreneur or actually I don't feel like I'm an entrepreneur. But I would say the, the common thread that you can say drives my transitions on my path so far is wanting to do something meaningful Uh and having an impact and doing something for the greater good, not for myself, but for others. Sure. But in your career, when you took these decisions, what was the reason behind it? What was the first transition? That was driven by curiosity And also, in the beginning, I mentioned that I'm very curious about what Mm -hmm. drives people. Mm -hmm. I'm also very curious about different cultures. Mm. So being educated in the U.S., I felt that there was an insularity perception that the best things in the world can only be done in the U.S., And now the best is only in Denmark. (laughs) I didn't know that then, right? I mean, Denmark is utopia, right? But I didn't know that then. And so that was a part of the drive to come into a different culture, come to Europe, see how else things can be done, see how else people can live. And actually, the way of life in Denmark was more similar to, to my country. In what sense? Laid back, good life. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? I'm really surprised now. Um, In the US, it's 24-7, this drive, drive, drive. Whereas when I came to Denmark, shops were still closed on Sundays. Uh Saturday was a half day. There's a huge (laughs) emphasis on on family and getting together with your friends. So are you really comparing Caribbean with Denmark? (laughs) Yes, I am. Because that's 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 how how you felt. And and that's how, I think to a large extent, it still is like that. That on Sundays, and maybe because of the strong Catholicism on my island, the focus is on 
you know, spending time with family and friends and having a yeah. balanced life yeah. and not working all the time. And now after COVID, we hear these discussions, you know, mm-hmm. about how do you have balance in your life and the great resignation because people don't want to just be... No, but in that death. sense, Scandinavia so, was also always a pioneer in that, I think. Exactly, exactly. Compared to the rest of Europe. So, so that was one of the things that was attractive about. So my motivation to come to them was about curiosity, about the cultural aspects of it, but also, as I mentioned earlier, it's because the Carlsberg Lab was um, world-renowned and doing state-of-the-art science within combinatorial chemistry, and okay. I wanted to be and learn from the best. So how would you describe the two main pivotal points in these transitions? The first transition, as you mentioned, it's from going from academia to biotech industry. Carlsberg Laboratory at the time was considered an academic institution and we did a lot of basic research. And so you could say I was on the academic path and four years after I started at Carlsberg Lab, I got married and then I had a kid and my partner is also within academia. So you had two very (laughs) demanding careers Mm -hmm. because it is all consuming. If you want to be at the Mm -hmm. cutting edge and the forefront, there's the research, but also the publishing, the reading, the networking, participating in conferences. So before we had a kid, it was not unusual that we would work from 10 to 2 Mm a.m. and seven days a week. And we loved it. It was fun. But when you have a kid in the picture, can't continue that way. Mm -hmm. And yes, we had help. We had an au pair. But at the same time, I did not feel that I would be able to continue that pace in an academic career with a partner who is also doing the same thing and having a small child. Since I also had interest in seeing the, the practical applications of the research, this is also something that I'm very you know interested in. So for me, it, would be, it was a natural segue into to biotech where you, yes, you do work a lot of hours, but it's less it's demanding. It's a different it's, kind it's of... It's a different dim- kind of way and yeah. it's less demanding and I was not always, you know, tied to the lab. And I thought it was more compatible mm-hmm. or, or harmonized greater with having a child and having a partner who is also <laughs> in the mm-hmm. academic track. So it was for basic for personal reasons. That was the first that was the, pivotal the first change. Pivotal change. And during the years at Novo Nordisk, I really grew as a leader and learning to to manage and and develop people. And those are skills that I used quite a lot of in the establishment of the nonprofit uh, Professional Women of Color. Mm-hmm. Then. The second transition that you mentioned, it's the transition from Novo to my situation right now. We actually, we never really got around to talking about it. But right now I am an independent consultant where I consult to other smaller biotech and pharmaceutical companies within drug development. I'm also a trained executive coach. So I do coach, coaching, leadership Mm -hmm. or career, appropriately career coaching. And I am a certified board member. I'm on the board of an NGO 
and I'm looking to be on the board of um, more companies. This is something that's uh, very interesting to me. And the new, I could say the new venture for me yeah. is that of being a, a business angel and investor. So if you look back to when I started studying chemistry and my bachelor's degree, I never imagined that this was where it would end up. And you might think that this is... Um, very strange, but there is a, a red thread. And as I said, one of the reasons of going into science and, you know, the pharma industry is being able to have an invention or a product that can make the difference in the lives of people. And if the purpose is to make the difference, make the world a better place, there are many ways that you can do it, right? As a business angel, you invest in the ideas of the future. You invest in people. As a coach, you have direct one-on-one -on -one interactions with people where you can actually see how you're making a difference in their lives. So I would say that's the, the red thread. Mm-hmm. I say, I'm just curious now thinking like, what does it mean to be a business angel? Like what do you, what are you looking for? What kind of companies are you looking for? A business angel invests usually financially into companies. Mm -hmm. It's compared to a venture capital. It's a smaller amount yeah. of money that you invest. So usually. But is there a syndicate? Is there a group of people when you say business angels? There are many networks for um, business angels. And you can invest in a company either as an individual or in a syndicate. It all depends on okay. on how much uh, money that you have or the assets that you have. And do you have a particular type of ventures you'd like to be involved in? Absolutely. I have a different set of criteria and my focus is what they call impact investment. So I would invest in ideas and early startups that have uh, technologies that make the world a better place. It mm -hmm. could be within climate, for example. And the other thing is I also have a focus on what they call femtech. Mm -hmm. So invest in companies and startups that have ideas and products that improve the health of women. There's not a lot of research done <laughs> in, into uh, products uh, for women. And because of my firm belief in diversity and inclusion, and also because that uh, the data shows that women and minority founders have a hard time finding um, investors and, and getting the funding. It's a very, very tiny percent. Because of that, I also have a requirement that the startups that I invest in have a majority female and or minority founder. Mm -hmm. Super. Is there a lot of that going on in Scandinavia or are you like, are you looking outside Denmark and Scandinavia? Denmark has always been a innovation mm -hmm. hub so there is there are a lot a lot a lot of ideas you have a DTU Skylab you have so many incubators at universities yeah but are you focused on but my focus primarily in Denmark mm -hmm. but I have had or I am considering a couple opportunities outside of Denmark that's why I'm asking. <laughs> do, you, do you have some leads or no 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 I'm just curious that's all Okay, so we discussed some of your transitions and I read this really a while back. I read a book on transitions where actually it describes transitions as it starts actually at the end of something. Mm -hmm. And then there's a period where you're, it's called like a neutral zone. 
And then when you start something new, that's the end of your transition. How do you cope with the transitions and your neutral zone? Everybody has a pattern I'm beginning to understand now because we've all made career choices and transitions. And there's a different people seem to perceive it in different ways. Others, only when they started a new one, then they, you know, they accept quickly it's a transition and then they go and work out what happened. Others are in the grieving point because it's almost a death of an idea, mm. death of a dream. And then they have to grieve it before they move to a new prospect. That's a very interesting question. And I'm reflecting on my transitions and now that you've brought this up, I can see that my response to them, yeah, the two, mm-hmm. were very different. Okay. The first uh, transition from academia to industry, it was one where I grieved. Uh-huh. And maybe just to unpack the, the story uh, a little bit more. First, there was the academia to the farmer. And I'm not sure how you've heard it, but at the time, there's a perception that if you cannot hack it as an academic, then you go to industry. So there seems to be some sort of... Oh, yeah, there was this, (laughs) like moving to the dark side. (laughs) But but also there is some sort of uh, elitist. Like if you're really brilliant, then you stay in academia. And if you can't It's no longer... Yeah, I'm just saying, yeah, yeah, thankfully, thankfully we have progressed. Yeah. (laughs) And it's no longer that way. But at the time, there was this sort of um, perception... Sure. And so you ask yourself, am I less than? Because now you're transitioning to industry. And within the industry, I also trained, changed roles. I was first a principal scientist. So yes, I could still see my identity is that as a scientist. Mm. I worked in the lab. I yeah. went to conferences, you know, wrote papers. And then the second transition within pharma is to step out of the lab and then go more into leadership and where you're not directly involved with the science anymore. And then the question is, can I still call myself an, a, a scientist? So that whole identity. Yeah, definitely. And it took a really long time for me to, to process that. And I think one of the things that I told myself is that you're still making a difference. You're still highly skilled. You're still brilliant. And you're using your skills in a different way, right? Because as a leader, I had to learn how to, you know, set a strategy to motivate um, employees to, to, to be a role model. So it's using who you are and your skills in a different way. But at the end of the day, you're still making, you're still working for the greater good and you're still making a difference. So, so that was the, the narrative and the story. Mm-hmm. And again, I think the first transition, again, was really hard because it was completely a complete change of my identity and I think one of the things I also went through it very much alone because when I reflect on the second I transition um, to be an independent consultant and you know venture into spaces that I probably would not have dared before Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's because that I was older more experienced but that transition was not as difficult And some of the things, when I reflect on it, I didn't go through it alone. I had a core of mentors, friends, I call them my personal advisory board, that I would speak to and get advice 
And that support really made the difference. And the second thing is that in my second half of career in farmer, I tried not to pin my identity on what I did, but more who I am and what my purpose is. And so if this is my identity, you know, a change maker, a leader, a mentor, a coach, these are things that I can carry with me anywhere and in anything I do. So there was not so much, there was not much of an identity change in the second transition. No, I think the first transition is always the hardest. The concept of identity that I assumed after the first transition, it's an identity that I don't think it will change dramatically for me because this is the core of who I am. And so who I am will be the same, whatever what I do. So for me, it was disassociating my identity with what I did Mm. and focusing more on my identity as who I am. And I think that was instrumental in helping through the second transition. Definitely. There's also, yeah, there has to be a part of detachment from who you were or what you were doing to where you want to go, where Mm. you want to be, who you want to be. Did you ever suffer from imposter syndrome or what kind of advice would you give people who suffer from imposter syndrome? I think it's a very good question. To be honest, I struggle with the concept of... uh, imposter syndrome. Maybe because all through my life, I have jumped into things without making sure that I have, you know, all the capabilities. So it's always, oh shit, I have to learn to swim really quickly. And I'm always trying something new and putting myself in situations where I'm not very comfortable. So for me, it's always part of me that to learn quickly. But the thought that I don't belong in those spaces... Mm-hmm. It's not something that I have personally thought about a lot. I have thought about, oh, am I going to be able to do it right or properly? Because I tend to have high expectations to myself. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I throw myself into new things and I figure I will learn it as I go along. So there's always this period where I am very uncomfortable. So whether that is imposter syndrome I'm not sure. Uncomfortable because it's a new challenge or uncomfortable because you're not sure you're good enough? And when I say I'm not good enough right now, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's new. Yeah. Interesting. A few rapid fire questions. Looking back in your journey, if you were not a scientist, what would you have done? It's funny that you should ask that. When I was a child, lying down, staring up at the stars and dreaming, my first uh, career I wanted to be was a pilot. Ah. And that's because I've always been curious about different cultures and travel. Mm-hmm. And then when I started studying for my A-levels, the thought was that I would end up working for the UN. Ah. I love learning languages. So if I weren't a chemist, I'd probably end up working as a translator. What advice would you give to 20-year-old self? I would tell 20-year-old Phaedra, don't worry, be happy. Yeah, That sounds cliche, but really sometimes we worry so much about what the future is going to be. But looking back, I can see that every single thing that has happened to me in my life, the opportunities as well as the rejections have all prepared me 
to where I need to be today. So it's going to be okay. Take risks. Has anybody given you advice that you haven't taken? Uh, yes. <laughs> My husband. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say what it is, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> and is there any advice that you've taken that you use throughout your career? The one from my undergraduate supervisor who said, you can let things happen to you or you can make things happen for you. This is something that I have used a lot, you know, to motivate myself. When I'm tentative, you know, should I ask her for this meeting or should I do this or should I do that? You know, it's like, That's your mantra. Come on, make it happen. Good. And then another thing that I used to say is, um, no is an invitation to negotiate. Say that again? No uh-huh. is an invitation to negotiate. Oh, <laughs> you don't take no for an answer. <laughs> Not if it really matters. Not if it's what I want. Yeah. And is it important to have a sponsor? Because you also mentioned you had a sponsor or you have sponsors. Absolutely. It's uh, Alpha and Omega. You need people who will speak your name and then you're not there who mm. will promote you. Mm. Do you find a sponsor or the sponsor finds you? Both. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, again, it goes back to to networking and cultivating relationships. You can't go up to somebody, ask them, will you be my sponsor? <laughs> sure. That's the way you would ask uh, somebody to be a mentor. But by building relationships, by the performance that you, like how you perform, it would attract sponsors. Super. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. <laughs> I think the big take home is find your purpose. Be clear about what you want out of life and go for it. And having said that, understand that life and circumstances change. Mm -hmm. So it's completely okay to shift and change career paths. The the concept of having a linear upward trajectory as a career, this is sort of archaic. But if you're true to your purpose and you have that as the basis of your identity, then it will help you navigate um, through life, through ups and downs, uh, through everything. And also there's a study that came out recently emphasizing having good relationships. Mm -hmm. It's very key that you surround yourself with people yeah. who support you, who are honest with you, who tell you the truth. And that's also why, you can have fun with. That's fun why it's important, so important to yes. have fun and to have a network of people that who have either been on the journey or who know what you're going through and who can help lift you. Yeah, absolutely. Super. Thank you so much, Fedra. Thank for, you for having me here. It's been a great pleasure. Hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> okay, that's a wrap. Thank you. It's a wrap. How was that? It was good. Thanks for listening to Life Science Talent Talks. Hope this has inspired you. If so, we encourage you to join us on our LinkedIn group, where you can help us shape this life science talent community and continue the discussion. Please see all the relevant links in the description.